This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Politico reports that Eric Lander, the president's science advisor and head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, resigned on Monday due to credible evidence of him bullying and mistreating his staff. President Biden stated at the beginning of his presidency that he has a zero-tolerance policy for bullying. Lander's departure is the highest-profile resignation for the Biden administration to date. The IRS announced that it will transition away from facial recognition technology for taxpayers. This announcement comes after backlash from federal agencies and the general public about privacy concerns. The IRS had launched a new identity verification process in November using a service called ID.me. It required taxpayers to create an account by providing a photo of a government-issued document and then taking a selfie. The Department of Justice had the largest financial seizure in U.S. history on Tuesday. That included more than $3.6 billion worth of cryptocurrency, which was linked to a widespread hack of a digital currency exchange website in 2016. President Biden and lawmakers are working to regulate digital currencies, especially given the correlation between cryptocurrencies and human trafficking. This past year may be one of the most costly years for extreme weather events due to climate change, and it's only going to get worse. The GAO is looking at how the government is approaching climate resilience, which is the plans and preparations for climate hazards. Alfredo Gomez is Director of Natural Resources and Environment Issues at the GAO. Alfredo, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So in general, how is the government doing in promoting climate resiliency? Yeah, so the government most recently, uh, through executive orders, has been addressing climate resilience through the development of climate adaptation and resiliency plans. This past October, there were about 20 of those plans that were issued, trying to identify what those climate risks are, but more importantly, figuring out how you're going to build resilience towards those risks. So I want to start with the electricity grid. Climate disasters can damage the generators, the transmission lines. What are federal agencies doing to make those more resilient? So exactly. So, you know, the electricity grid is primarily owned by the private sector, but the federal government has a big role. And the role that it has is is in providing information, climate risks, climate projections, so that they can build better resilience towards it. And as you said, climate change affects all aspects of of the electricity grid, whether it's the generation, the distribution, the transmission, and even the demand for electricity. So it's really important for the federal government to do what it can to help build resilience to the grid. I mean, you say that the federal government has a role in uh, sharing information and things like that, but can't they require these companies to make their make the grid more resilient? So one of the things that we have done, for example, we've made recommendations to the Department of Energy and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC. And for the Department of Energy, it's really for them to develop a, a department-wide strategy for how to address um, resilience to the grid, and also for FERC to do something similar, to identify what the risks are 
and to really respond to it. So they do work with the private sector to provide that information. So really it's, it's, it's in everybody's interest, right? To make sure that we have a reliable grid because at the end of the day, it's the federal government that ends up paying for the repairs and all the costs. And then taxpayers, we end up paying for that as you, well. You mentioned the Department of Energy. Do they actually have a strategy for protecting the grid? So we, we recommended that they develop a department-wide strategy to do a better job. They've been taking steps and doing efforts, but really hadn't looked at it in, in the whole of government approach. So that's what we've recommended. And we're going to be looking at this issue some more in, in the coming year. So, Alfredo, you know, climate resiliency can cost a lot of money. You know, if you raise a bridge by two feet because sea levels are rising, that's a high cost. So what budget does that funding come out of? Well, so, you know, when disasters happen, it, it really just comes out from the federal government. We don't really budget for it. When those happen, you know, we end up paying for them. But even for the Department of Transportation, you know, we give billions of dollars to the states in transportation. And we wanna make sure that those dollars are well spent by ensuring that they're building resilience, right? You, you mentioned that bridges have to be elevated. Some of the roads in our country that are federally funded get flooded on a regular basis. Some, some of those are affected by, by climate. So we've issued a report and we, we told the Department of Transportation, we gave them many options where they can do a better job to ensure that those monies are well spent and that we're building resilience to those uh, to those climate risks. So really, it's each department deciding how much money they want to set aside for climate resiliency. Right, so, so the Department of Transportation does have uh, a program looking at climate resiliency, but we believe that they can do more. And so we've laid out 10 different options that, that they could do. Uh, now, also in the... Uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill that was recently passed, um, there is also money for resiliency projects. And in particular, there's some money for the highways uh, to do resiliency projects as well. So there is set asides there. How is the Defense Department doing in protecting their installations? Sure, so I mean, climate change does present a risk to our DOD facilities. Uh, the Department of Defense's mission and its infrastructure. And so we've done work as well, looking at how well the Department of Defense, for example, was identifying the vulnerabilities of its installations. And we made recommendations there as well, not just their domestic facilities, but also their facilities around the world, because they're all at risk from the impacts of climate change. What about protecting their supply chain? Yes, yeah, so supply chain is also very important, right? Because we rely on those goods and services that are coming to us. And if our roads are flooded or if the electricity is out, we can't get those, those critical supplies to the installation. So those are also very important. We've looked at that issue as well, and we've made some recommendations that agencies be better. Well, one, that they identify, right, what those risks are to their supply chains, and they respond to them so they can be better prepared. I want to go back to the roadways because you estimate that climate-related damages to paved roads may cost up to $20 billion annually by the end of the century. So what is the Federal Highway Administration doing about that specifically? No, and that, and that is a really good point. We do spend a lot of money, right, when these disasters happen. And so the, we, we've recommended the Department of Transportation, again, do a better job in the billions of dollars that we're giving out to make sure that the states who end up getting the money, right, and they're the ones that are funding the projects, 
but that they are building resilience to those roads. Because honestly, at the end of the day, we don't want to be rebuilding the same roads every time a disaster happens, right? We want to rebuild them in a smarter way, in a more uh, stronger way as well. All right. Well, Alfredo, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Coming next, what federal employees can do to file discrimination appeals when they don't have a lawyer. Straight ahead on Government Matters, I'll speak with the creative or new employee guide at the EEOC. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. For federal employees or applicants who want to appeal a discrimination case, the EEOC has just released a guide to help those that don't have lawyers navigate the appeals process and write better arguments. Edmund Chang is the Senior Attorney Advisor at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Edmund, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, remind us of the process for when a government employee or an applicant um, wants to file a discrimination claim. Okay, well, the process, um, to put it simply, if you are a federal employee or a job applicant and you feel a federal agency has discriminated against you, you first contact that particular federal agency. Afterwards, the agency will decide whether or not to accept your claim of discrimination. If they dismiss the claim, you can immediately appeal that decision to the EEOC Office of Federal Operations here in Washington, D.C. Okay, which brings us to the appeal process. Okay, yeah. so explain that process. So the appeals process happens when there was a lower decision determining whether or not you were discriminated against or whether there's any other procedural defects. You can then file your appeal with EEOC and you can submit what we call an appeals brief. That's a statement in support of your appeal. And we will then consider uh, both sides' arguments, look at the record, and issue an administrative appellate decision. Okay, so give us some numbers about how, about how many appeals um, decisions there are per year for federal employees or applicants. And then how many of those don't have a lawyer to help them? Okay. Um, well, each fiscal year, our office receives between four to 5,000 appeals, and we roughly estimate between 70% to 80% of those appeals are done by uh, people who don't have a lawyer. And among those people, about half don't submit appeal briefs at all. What do you mean they don't? I mean, aren't they required to submit an appeals brief? The appeals brief is, is an optional document. So some people, you know, they, they do submit their briefs, but some people opt not to. So what prompted the EEOC to put this guide together? Um, th there's a couple strands, but I think what it really started was, um, you know, we're always looking to try to improve our process to better serve our customers. And so a couple years ago, we did a focus group on people who had gone through that process. And what we learned was that there was this sort of hunger, this need for some additional guidance. Um, one gentleman that I talked to, he had told us that 
he had spent hours and hours and hours trying to Google what the right format was to submit the appeal brief. He felt it was very important to look professional, to be correct, because that lent credibility. And there simply wasn't anything that he could access. So that was, I think, the first spark that prompted this project. All right, well, take us through what the guide has. What are some of the important features? Well, uh, the guide itself attempts to demystify the legal fog that surrounds the, uh, the appeals brief. Uh, so, for example, we have a glossary that um, explains what the legal jargon is, what the technical terms are. Uh, and also, I think more importantly, we have um, a section that tries to tell you what type of an, of an appeal you have. And that, in turn, dictates what sort of things you should focus on in your appeals brief. And finally, we have, for that gentleman we talked to in the focus group, two sample briefs so that people can download them, look at them, and use them as templates going forward for their own appeals brief. So what would you say is the biggest mistake people make when they're filing an appeals brief? I think the biggest mistake is simply not knowing what type of appeal you have and what to focus on. Yeah, explain mm -hmm. that. What, what do you mean there's different types of appeals? Uh, the basic types of appeals are between what we call procedural appeals and merits appeals. Procedural appeals are those where the previous decision dismissed your complaint because of a procedural defect. Either you failed to state a claim or you were untimely in some way. And a lot of folks, they um, focus on just the merits of their appeal. They're trying to prove discrimination when at that point in the process, it's not the relevant question they should focus on. Um, you know, for procedural decisions, you may have to show, yes, I was timely in contacting an EEO counselor. I was timely in filing my complaint. At that point, there has been no investigation. Uh, you know, it's, it's just not the right time to try to prove your case. And so I think if one takeaway people can get is just to distinguish between whether you have a procedural appeal or whether this is the moment where you have to prove discrimination. What, I, you know, the, the guide has just come out. I wonder what you're hoping uh, will happen as a result of this guide being out and available and people using it. Well, I hope that for federal employees and applicants who are representing themselves before the commission, and also for those representatives who don't have legal training, so I'm talking about perhaps union representatives, they can have this guide to help them better understand what the appeals process is. And when they get a better understanding, they can understand what things that they should be focusing on in their briefs. They should then be able to make better arguments, we should be able to make better decisions, and ultimately they should have a better experience overall with the process. And finally, Edmund, I know one, you know, among the priorities of the administration is equity, accessibility, um, also better customer service for the American people. How does this further that? Um, you, you know, definitely for those who can't afford attorneys, um, you know, this is a way for them not to level the playing field, but just to, you know, give them a, a better chance to make their best arguments before us. All right. Well, Edmund, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you very much, Mimi. Up next, Russian and Ukrainian tensions are on the rise as they prepare for an invasion. Still ahead on Government Matters, how the U.S. can address the humanitarian crisis unfolding at the Russian-Ukrainian border. We'll be right back.
As tensions rise on the Ukraine-Russia border, there are increased concerns about the humanitarian toll a Russian invasion could have on the Ukrainian people. Errol Yaiboke is a director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Errol, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So give us an idea of the current humanitarian situation in Ukraine in light of the previous Russian invasion, which was in 2014. Absolutely. I think lots of people forget that after the Russian invasion of 2014, there was a significant humanitarian fallout. And uh, by UN estimates, over 3 million people currently, pre this new Russian invasion, if it ever happens, over 3 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. A lot of those, hundreds of thousands of those, at least, are internally displaced people, people who have been forced from home by conflict. I was going to ask you about the situation with refugees and internally displaced persons. That's, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. It places Ukraine in the top 20 countries of internally displaced people worldwide. So we don't think of Ukraine always as this hotspot conflict zone that, that forces a lot of people from home. But post-2014, that's actually been the reality. So what kind of humanitarian assistance is Ukraine receiving now and from whom? So the, the international community and in, protect, in particular the, the UN, but also significant support by the United States government, the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, State Department, uh, PRM, uh, Population, Refugees and Migration, a whole host of, of places around the world are providing humanitarian support to Ukrainians. However, it's worth noting that most of that support is needed in the non-government controlled areas in eastern Ukraine. However, access to those areas remains very limited. What do you mean the non-government controlled areas? So in there's two eastern regions, uh, Luhansk and, and um, do I, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the, the name of the other one, but uh, there's two regions in eastern Ukraine that uh, are basically divided after 2014 there's a contact line that separates the government controlled areas so the, the places that are controlled by Kiev uh, and the places that are controlled uh, by more Russian-backed separatists and, and there's actually borders between those two parts of the same region the same province um, there are borders that uh, by most estimates are stronger than most international borders that separate them well, a Russian invasion would obviously make things worse. In, in what way, though? It really depends on the direction of the invasion, um, how significant it is. Right now, Russia is encircling Ukraine on three sides, including to the north uh, in, in Belarus. And so if they were to invade from all sides, then you could certainly see people being forced from home, trying to just go wherever they can, including uh, outside of Ukraine. I think a lot of estimates, uh, or a lot of experts think that the, the invasion, if it does come, might come from uh, the eastern parts of Ukraine, in which case it really just depends on, on how far into Ukraine they go. I mean, does the civilian population of Ukraine know what to do in the event of a Russian invasion? Are, are they making preparations? So I, I talked to a few civil society leaders in Ukraine last week, and I think the, the unfortunate answer is not really. Uh, I, they are um, certainly used to insecurity and re Russian aggression. 
but there's not uh, a sense of where am I going to go if the tanks roll in? Where am I going to go if a bomb destroys the house next to me? I'm not sure that everybody's made those plans yet. And how are those humanitarian and civil society organizations preparing for a possible invasion? Absolutely. I think the, the humanitarian organizations and different arms of the UN are certainly putting in place contingency plans for if the invasion does come from this direction, this is where people will go. So we need to pre-position supplies in those areas. I think the, the concern of the humanitarian agencies on the ground is that that contact line, that border internal to Ukraine that I mentioned, is really not allowing people to pass right now. So in the event of, a, uh, of an invasion, it's unlikely that they will just open up and allow people uh, in that area, millions of people in that area to, to flee. And so that's, I think, where the biggest concern of the humanitarian community is right now. Well, I wonder what you think U.S. policymakers should be focused on. What can they do, if anything? So I asked this question to Ukrainian friends and colleagues as well, and they said two things. Um, one is that when U.S. policymakers are making plans and preparations for to respond to a, a new Russian invasion, they need to go, those plans and preparations need to go beyond the military and the diplomatic. They have to include uh, how to support uh, civilians in need. And the second is to keep up pressure on both Russia and the Russia-controlled separatists, those non-government-controlled areas in eastern Ukraine, keep up pressure on those authorities to allow those humanitarian agencies access to provide support to people in need. All right. Well, Errol, appreciate you joining us. We certainly uh, hope for the best for the Ukrainian people. Thank you so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now 
managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.